You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to the Morning Wake Up Call here on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. You got myself, Luke Farrell. We got Bruno Valdez over here in studio, and we also have Jason Wyke and Hannah Vincent coming with us over there as well. Uh, right after this, we're going to get into our interview with Dr. Anoop Rai. Uh, we're also going to be talking about some other Long Island issues as well in terms of traffic safety and also some upcoming events on Bachelor Nation uh, to go and look out for. So we will go and get that to that on the other side. So welcome back, everybody. Uh, I know it is the last uh, last morning wake-up call, I will say, of the January session. So, Bruno, uh, back in studio, how are we feeling about that? What's the what's the vibe going on? I'm feeling good. It's a lot different doing it in the studio. you got a, a lot more energy. It's kind of different vibe when you're doing it live. How are you guys? Jason, what do we think? I'm, I'm doing good, Luke. How are we already at this point? just feels like the time the past couple of weeks has really accelerated and you know, crazy that we're already here at the last one of our little mini crow here. Then it's going to be the spring already. I'm, I'm getting ready. We got the new shows coming up. Hannah, how how we been feeling over there? We got any uh, cold Minnesota air again at all? Yeah, it was snowing last night, so I'll definitely be excited to get back to a slightly warmer New York. <laughs> how, much, how much snow you get last night? Not much, just a couple of little flurries, but it was fun to watch. <laughs> Well, you know, you got a lot of snow. We got a ton of rain last night. I don't know about you all, but I went to my, I was in my dorm room and I just kept hearing these little drips and drops. And I was like, oh no, please, dear goodness. I hope my room doesn't fall apart. Uh, but it wasn't the end of the world, but it definitely was a lot of like water damage, cracking stuff. So I'm going to have to get to that in a little bit, but we'll see. Any, any room problems with you all? You're pretty good? No, I just had to walk in the rain. So that was something. All right. So, you know, hopefully uh, not too much for the rainy days, if need be. Uh, I know we will get to weather in a little bit. But, Bruno, of course, you do have your news updates. So feel free to go ahead and fill us in on what we got. Well, now going on into the world. Haiti's government is calling for international aid as the ongoing gang violence cannot be quelled by their police force. Germany and the U.S. will provide tanks to Ukraine to combat the Russians. The British unions continue to announce further dates being added for more upcoming strikes. A new study finds a possible link between COVID infection and higher risk of high cholesterol. And Justin Roiland has just been let go from Hulu and Adult Swim after domestic violence charges. I was actually just going to say about that Justin Roiland thing because, uh, you know, you, you only just heard about it, obviously, recently yeah. for everything going on there. And granted, one of the RAs in our building actually made a, a pickle, pickle Rick 
uh, like door tag and stuff. And there was a whole thing where, you know, I guess, what was it, like Rick was like taped to the, with a duct tape or whatever. Yeah. And so they did that for the door tag, which is pretty cool. But Talk of course, about uh, bad timing on that, though. Yeah, definitely. Definitely not the greatest timing uh, with that one. Uh, but granted, you definitely have that. We'll get to entertainment. I know we have a little later in the uh, session time over there. Uh, Jason, I know we already prefaced weather. What do we have on the horizon for us? So definitely drier than yesterday as of for today's weather forecast. Currently, we're looking at the high right now for the entire day is going to be right now at around 48 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, it'll be cloudy mainly. You know, I feel like we have a streak of just every Thursday being either rainy or cloudy. So that will continue. The rest of the day should only get colder every hour periodically about around a degree drop and then uh, eventually tonight we'll be dropping down into the 30s and uh yeah so you know it only gets colder from here so everybody hope you have your jackets and you're warmed up after you know a cold wet day yesterday it'll be an even colder windier day today I, I say, uh, dare I say it, snow is in the forecast next week. Uh, a bit of a rainy snow mixture, so we're going to see how that works. Uh, granted, I don't I don't know how that one's going to go. It could be either way on that one. But uh, granted, I know we do have our interviewee on the line, so we do not want to keep them waiting, uh, if anything else. So we will get right to it into our day's national news uh, story on the end. Um, so granted, lots of talk about the debt ceiling going on throughout the United States government. Uh, so granted, as it continued to lo- continues to loom itself uh, over America's head, uh, of course, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Janet Yellen, had told Speaker of the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, of the, quote, considerable, considerable uncertainty, end quote, uh, of the United States would face if we were to default on their national debt for the first time in the nation's history. Here to discuss the process and the impact this would have on the nation's economy is Dr. Anoop Rai, professor of the Frank G. Zarb School of Business at Hofstra University for Finance and the director of the Center for International Financial Services and Markets. Dr. Rai, thanks for joining us today. Uh, no problem. Uh, nice, to, nice to be here, Luke. Of course, no worries. So just just to get us started off, granted, uh, for our listeners and whatnot, what exactly is the debt ceiling and how does it necessarily impact our economic stability as a nation? So we, uh, as a nation, you know, we collect tax revenues from people uh, and from companies, and then we use that money to spend on uh, everything that the government does that includes Social Security, Medicare, defense, etc., and of course, we spend a little bit more than we get in, so we have to borrow money. And during the COVID pandemic, we too, we had to borrow extra because we spent a lot of money at that point. So what has happened is our debt, uh, the amount of debt that we owe now is around $31 trillion. Uh, but what happens is now we need to borrow more. And so um, we have to therefore get permission from the from Congress or for the treasury in order to borrow it, let's say, from everybody else. And as a result, the next we've reached the ceiling, and now we need another $2.5 trillion extra. So what's going to happen is, uh, well, technically, we have reached the limit, and the treasury cannot issue any more bonds, which is how they borrow from the public. Um, so we need the permission. So uh, essentially, um, that's what it is. It's We need the permission. It's like your credit card. You know, you reached your max and now you have to call the bank and say, listen, 
can you increase the credit limit by another $2,000? And so that's where we are. And in order to get that, Congress have to prove. And now what the Republicans are saying is that just before the end of last year, they passed a massive budget and this group of Republicans are trying to stall it. Um, so is that clear as far as the reasons why, what the debt ceiling is? Oh, no, that that's perfectly clear. We should be good. Bruno, I know you had a second question going up. Go ahead. Yes, considering how crucial this is for the nation, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had warned of enormous consequences on the U.S. economy, global financial stability, and many Americans. What would in those consequences be? So, for example, right now, um, they have to put some money into the pension of the federal regulators um, every month. They don't they are not able to do that because they cannot borrow to put the money in. The worst case scenario will be sometime in June because they can do a lot of financial uh, movement. It's not irregularities. It's you can move the money around. But by, by June, if they haven't raised the debt ceiling, we won't be able to pay the interest on the debt. And about half our debt is actually owned outside the country. So we won't be able to pay that. And that will be the first time that the US defaults and that can send the shockwaves around the world. Um, having said that, I think we don't need to worry because I, I the, uh, the it, if you read the papers, it appears that the Republicans have an upper hand, but actually they don't, because in 2011 uh, we did had a, sim a similar scenario under Obama, and what happened is um, it reached a stage where the government couldn't pay the salaries of federal employees, but that backfired, uh, and therefore you know it it raised a lot of hostility as well as negative reaction to the Republicans if they do that, if it reaches a stage. So I'm not sure how this is going. I'm not sure why this is a concern, let's say, for the Democratic Party, because if the Republicans do it, they'll get a really bad backlash on that. So I think at the end of the day, it's just going to be some minor agreements to satisfy it. But I'm overall, I'm quite confident that it will not take place. If it does, it will be a real disaster, but that's why I really doubt that it will be, it'll take place. So obviously, Dr. Rye, this hasn't been the first time that the debt ceiling has been raised. Uh, granted that it's been raised over a hundred times since World War II itself. Uh, so granted, why is there always a multitude of actions to raise the debt ceiling, would you say? So it's the same as the credit card uh, scenario. Every you know, when you reach the max limit, you have to ask uh, permission. So as you recall, the only time we've had a surplus was the few years when President Clinton was in office, and it was just before uh, just before the dot com uh, bubble the, took place. So it, it's a simple. Um, is it necessary? Is it is it a good thing to have? I think in some ways maybe it is. There's some constraint on our lending because right now actually uh, our debt is greater than 100% of GDP. And uh, one of the lines that economists have drawn is, is that uh, having a debt to GDP of 60% is a good idea. Uh, it's really not... Um, followed most, I mean, it's generally followed, but most countries now have exceeded that, especially after the COVID crisis. 
Um, so you, you could argue one way or the other uh, for both parties. I think um, having some sort of limit and then extending it as you need it is probably a good idea. So I know it sounds bad. We had done it every you know few years, but it, in my opinion, uh, it may not be a bad idea. It just keeps a check on our spending. And Dr. Wright, taking that into consideration, especially how much it is that we owe right now to international banks and other nations over 100% of our GDP, this brings up the question of, is it continually raising the debt ceiling sustainable for our country and how so? Well, yes, the, you know, we have had about 35 to 40 years of very low interest rates. So that has been one of the reasons why we have been pretty lax in the way we borrowed it. The problem is that the interest rates are going up and therefore the, the amount of money we pay as interest is going to go up significantly. Um, is it really bad? Because you hear stories, well, you know, the next generation, which is you folks, are going to suffer uh, by having to pay a larger and larger amount of interest. Uh, and it is a problem. I have to say that the U.S. is a very strong economy. Um, uh, having 100% is not good. I think bringing it down to 60 would be a great uh, number. We have been good. Um, it's, it's, a t it's a tough call to, for you, to, to answer your question. It's, it, Japan, for example, has lived with 200 plus percent of GDP for the last 20 years. How are they doing? Well, they're doing well. Now, there is an important difference between Japan and U.S. Japanese consumers are savers, so they do save a lot of money, whereas Americans, we tend to spend a little bit more than what we have. So there's a little difference in behavior, but, but the, from an economic perspective, having even 200% debt is not going to kill a nation or anything like that. However, you know, like in all, all, all uh, 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 household behavior, the, if you can spend less than what you earn, that would be the best scenario. So granted, I know you also mentioned about just, you know, obviously with the interest and things of that nature, but how itself would raising the debt ceiling affect the current inflation uh, crisis that we have going on right now? So that's a good question. The problem is uh, because we're going to spend more and we are going to impact inflation more. Um, the Fed, however, has been quite effective in maintaining inflation in the last uh, for since 1982, so that's about 40 years. It, it, this is a little bit of unknown territory because uh, um, once inflation starts, it's a kind of a little hard to control. Uh, if if the if the global economy recovers, which is usually, in my opinion, if China and India, which are two powerhouses, grow, and Europe follows, and Europe is showing signs of improving. I think the Fed may be successful in containing the inflation. Uh, it will take a few years. We'll still end up with a recession this year, I think, a smaller recession than anticipated. And recessions by themselves will bring down the inflation. Uh, and then if we can maintain a steady growth, we should be okay. So I'd like to be a little optimistic. You've raised a concern. It is a, it's a real concern. But we've got some very good, you know, we've been pretty successful in maintaining it. Let's hope we can do it, continue to do it. 
And Dr. Wright, taking into consideration what you have mentioned before that Japan has a current debt-to-GDP ratio of 200%, it does bring naturally to the question of will there ever be a limit to how much we can raise the debt ceiling or how many times we can continue raising it? Theoretically, we keep raising it, but hopefully political pressure uh, uh, in, in from the public itself uh, will eventually, because if we don't, if, if if we continue to spend way more, then of course inflation will go up. Um, the real question is, are we spending a, quite a lot? In my opinion, and I'm, I'm biased, so our, I think we could easily cut our defense budget by quite a large number. Um, there are certain entitlements we, we could curtail and bring it to a balanced budget. Yes, that's feasible. Uh, yes, as you probably know, there's a lot of government waste uh, uh, in many areas. It's, but on the other hand, it's not an easy job to bring the waste down. You know, once government, you have to expect a certain amount of bureaucracy in government. The question is, can you bring it to a level where um, where we can safely manage and live within our means? And I think it takes a very strong politician and a group of politicians to enact it. But in, in this stage, especially with the divisive nature of our country right now, um, I'm a little pessimistic on that end, but hopefully down the road, uh, we will be able to manage it. Now, the, the, as I mentioned, the best solution is if we can have great growth, uh, 4% or so, uh, and if, if we can do that, then we should be able to bring it down, but uh, it'll depend a lot on the global economy. So I know you you mentioned more about that you know political pressure from the public to try and gain some interest through there in defining what you have for a budget and stuff not and whatnot for government spending. But how would you say is the best way to get people you know educated or learn more about the debt ceiling or just to spark more discussion about it in you know general circles and things of that nature? Yeah, and and that's never get discussed in the in the in the press. So you know it's never put into the right perspective on that. Uh, Again, you know, you might disagree with me, but for me, the, the uh, defense spending is going way out of bounds. Certain entitlements are going way out of bounds. In, in fact, Social Security and Medicare, uh, you know, and we have this other discretionary spending that is very a politically divisive issue that includes uh, a lot of Medicaid, Medicaid payments, et cetera. Um, it's a tough call. Look, it's not, it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, we, for example, we have a huge migrant crisis now, and then that, that means a lot of money that gets spent on there. Are you willing to take the chance and not offer the kind of money that needs to be spent there? Um, there are issues related to Social Security. Um, you know, uh, can will seniors accept a certain amount of reduction in their in their uh, benefits that they receive. Uh, if if the if the public is willing, then of course we can make those compromises and get it. But um, given the nature of, of uh, political system, I doubt this this will take place. It'll take a very good coordinated effort between both parties. Um, how we get tell the public that this is a really important issue it's an important issue for the next generation of our um of our children etc if we could but unfortunately even the press 
you know, doesn't do a good job of, of informing the public as to the real, uh, the real reason why we spend so much money, more money than, than we actually take in. And Dr. Rai, that answers the question. I... Yeah. Dr. Rai, finish your thought. You're good. No, no, I, I, I didn't know if that answered the question, but, but your point was well taken. People are not aware and, you know, and, and you don't blame people. We expect the government to take care of all these issues. You know, we got our own, everybody's working, uh, two people are working two jobs, actually. Uh, so, so most people's mind are focused on their own, own uh, um, living, you know, like I said before, our savings rate is not great. Uh, we work hard, but we also spend a lot more. Uh, we are not like the traditional savers in other countries. Um, so as a result, um, it's a combination, I guess. Uh, the public has to be aware that they, we as a country don't have enough money and therefore we have to curtail or expect less money uh, to receive. So, but I think your main point, your question was, how do we make people aware? And I think that's the job of the press. That's the job of what you're doing right now. And that's, uh, and I think the younger generation probably understand better too. They, they're reading it. So hopefully that will translate into policy at some point. And Dr. Rai, before we let you go, how, how can our listeners contact you, learn more about your work, the research that you're doing in Hofstra, and anything else you'd like to add that we didn't get to itself? Oh, sure. They're welcome to ask me any questions. Um, they can just Google uh, Frank Gisar, I mean, at Hofstra, and the last name Rai, R-A-I, and I'm sure I'm the only one that pops up, and there's an email there that they can send, but it is... Um, uh, F-I-N stands for finance, A-Z-R, which is the three initials at hostra.edu, or anuprai, at hostra.edu. And again, that was Dr. Anup Rai, Professor of Finance at the Frank G. Zarb School of Business at Hofstra University and the Director of the Center for International Financial Services and Markets. Dr. Rai, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Take care of it. And when we all get back, we are going to get to Hannah Vinson's report on The Bachelor. But first, it is time for The Drifters. Again, you're listening to The Morning Wake-Up Call. You're listening to Radio Hofstra University, available worldwide at WRHU.org. Again, the great climate factor there for The Drifters. Money, honey over there. Uh, granted, again, our thanks to Dr. Anoop Rai again for the discussion on the debt ceiling there that we had just before. Uh, granted, though, now now from money to, I guess, uh, love, if anything else. Uh, Hannah, I know you have your report uh, through the Bachelor podcast and the updates on the new season coming through. So take it away for us. If you're like me, you're probably super excited about the new Bachelor season, which just started airing last Monday, January 23rd. And you were probably wondering about the brand new Chris Harrison podcast that was recently released. This morning, I will be bringing you all the need-to-know details about Bachelor Nation. Let's start with our current Bachelor lead, Zach Shalcross. Zach is a 26-year-old tech executive from last year's Bachelorette season with co-leads Gabby and Rachel. He's from Anaheim Hills, California, and has been deemed the perfect guy. And fun fact, his uncle is Patrick Warburton, and fans are hoping he will make another appearance during Hometowns. But Zach isn't the only person with a celebrity relative. Contestant Christina Mandrell's aunt is Barbara Mandrell, the oldest of the famous music group, the Mandrell Sisters. And Christina has already made a big impression on both Zach and the viewers. 
During the cocktail party, Christina took Zach to the party bus she arrived in, and the two partook in a very awkward compatibility test. She is very extravagant and wore a very sparkly hot pink dress that made her hard to forget. The night was shaping out to be a pretty typical first night until Madison talked to Zach. She decided to take her time with him to teach him what the Midwestern term oofta means, since she's from Fargo, North Dakota. And at the end of their interaction, she went in for the kiss, but he deflected it with a hug. Feeling frustrated, she decided to talk to him a second time, and this time she chose to gritty with him. You heard that right, gritty. They finally kissed, but Madison was still upset, saying it was just a little peck. She then broke down into tears and kept repeating, I want to be wanted. Yet she was still convinced she would get the first impression rose, which she did not. It was given to Greer. This really upset Madison, so she decided to pull Zach aside before the rose ceremony. After Zach told her that he didn't feel connection with her, she was sent home once again sobbing. But hey, it wouldn't be an episode of The Bachelor if someone wasn't crying. The rest of the night went smoothly, and the preview for the season revealed that most of the drama stems from the girls fighting over Zach rather than fighting with him. I think everyone can agree this is a breath of fresh air after the catastrophe that was Clayton's season. In other Bachelor news, past host Chris Harrison has recently released a new podcast that he promises will have all the dirt concerning the show. For those who don't know or need a reminder, Harrison allegedly walked away from the Bachelor franchise in 2021, but some think ABC either fired him or encouraged him to walk away after he made some racist remarks. When photos of a Bachelor contestant attending a college party with the theming Antebellum Plantation were leaked during season 25, the contestant, Rachel Kirkconnell, quickly received backlash. Fans also found out that she had liked racist Instagram posts in the past. Kirkconnell immediately started receiving a lot of death threats. During an interview with Bachelorette Rachel Lindsay, note that she was the first Black Bachelorette, Chris Harrison asked the public to, quote, stop tearing Kirkconnell's life apart, and noted that some were even looking at her and her parents' past voting records. When Lindsay noted that the photos were not a good look, Harrison asked, quote, is it not a good look in 2018, or is it not a good look in 2021? Because there's a big difference. He went on to defend Kirkconnell, basically blaming it, blaming it on it being a different time, but also claiming that he didn't want to defend her. Some think this was the reason he, th- this being the reason he left was harsh, while others think it wasn't harsh enough. Either way, he is no longer associated with the show and has been replaced by former NFL, NFL quarterback and season five bachelor, Jesse Palmer. Harrison hasn't talked about his departure until now. His new podcast is titled The Most Dramatic Podcast Ever. He plans to talk about everything that happened during this time on the show, and he admits in the trailer that this will be therapeutic for him, saying he's, quote, looking forward to getting this off my shoulders. He ends the trailer by saying, quote, I'm Chris Harrison. I think it's time we talk. I will definitely be interested in following all the drama concerning both Zach's season and Harrison's podcast. For the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Hannah Vincent. Hannah, I I did have a question. I know you mentioned Gritty. I I only know Gritty because of the Philadelphia Flyers mascot. What what exactly is the definition of Gritty of what they did? That is that is radio appropriate for the FCC censors. <laughs> it's this like dance move. It's kind of like the Running Man, but not really. I don't really get it either. It was awful to watch, but. It's it was there. It happened. It's in the past. <laughs> they they were playing at they were playing my boo, I guess, for uh for the spot, I guess, for that song. <laughs> but so what what I guess I at least 
I know for me, I remember the whole Chris Harrison scenario going on, obviously, back then. I used to be a big Entertainment Tonight and, like, extra fan watching those. Uh, but granted, what what would you say is the impact on the show itself for Harrison's podcast to get released? Because, obviously, he it's he who no, knows all pretty much. So if he's going to dish out anything, what's the impact of the show going forward for that? I think it... A depends on how many people listen to him and I don't know how many people will, but I also think it depends on how deep he does go because the bachelor and ABC in general have had some issues with some racist things just recently. Even there was a contestant who had leaked photos of him doing blackface in high school come out and they didn't talk about it at all, which really upset not only fans, but people who were on the show in the past so it'll be interesting to hear like how many things that ABC tried to cover up or not talk about and how him being maybe fired, maybe walking away, whatever happened, why, but having to leave because of something he did in that regard, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say on that. And I think that is what could mostly affect it. But I also think he'll talk more just about the people and, you know, how many people were faking it and how much of the drama wasn't real. But I think a lot of the people who watch The Bachelor know that a lot of it isn't real or at least it's super forced. So I think that won't be as shocking. But unless there's like something super duper deep, I don't think it'll affect too much. I uh, I never watched The Bachelor. I watched uh, I watched Joe Millionaire for Richer or Poorer actually, the second uh, I guess reboot of that show. I really liked that because they had the original uh, thing with obviously the two uh, men and whatnot. Obviously, The Bachelorettes, like you said, did that last season. J- Jason, do do you usually watch any of the Bachelor Bachelorette shows? Do we do we get involved in that? So I thought it was funny, but just listening to the report, like. I think that I don't watch it personally, but I think that this show is something really good for the people that watch it because I feel like there's so much stuff that goes on in this world that is so negative. And then people are like, oh my God, they, they pecked instead of full on kissing and someone was crying. And, you know, so I think that like people get so invested into it and the fact that it's like, obviously it's nothing life or death, but that it's this outlet where people can kind of escape and just worry about something that doesn't really, you know, it's not going to like move the earth around or anything. So I totally get why people watch it, but for me, I'm just not a big reality guy. So yeah, never, never really was too big of a fan. Yeah, my my only very important takeaway on all this is as a, if I was a showrunner, that I'd be honestly really interested on how Chris Harris is going to change the dynamic of the show itself. Considering he used to be the host, so he knows every play in the book. He knows how the show goes, how everything goes. So, how do you think it will change the show for the season? What? Do you th- well, the season's already filmed because they did that a couple months ago. But they always have these live shows at the end of the season. And I feel like they could address that if they wanted to or needed to. But as I mentioned, they're really bad at addressing things that are happening outside of the show. And a lot of the viewers, like Jason said, like it's fun to just invest your time in something silly, like people crying because a boy doesn't like him. But also a lot of the times, like my family and I watch it and we honestly kind of make fun of them. And we're like, okay, I think you don't need to be sobbing over this. And that's during these live shows, they focus more on that. They'll be like, so why do you think you were crying? And sometimes people are like, we don't really want to listen to that, that we want to listen about the real life impact. So I feel like if something big happens with the podcast, they should address it, but I don't think they necessarily will. 
last thing for you, Hannah. What I guess I know I remember hearing about because Professor Brian McFadden, who's in the communications school, he's a really big fan of Survivor, of course. And he mentioned how when they did, when they finally won, like became the Survivor, obviously, they just had like the live reaction stuff right after that. It wasn't like a live show, bringing everybody back to the island, all that stuff. It was just right then and there. And that was it in the moment. Do you think that's better or do you like more of that live aspect uh, for anything through The Bachelor, if that's the case? I always have liked the live shows because there's one um, episode where it's called the men or the women tell all, which basically means they bring back all the contestants that got booted off the show and they just talk about everything that happened and they dish it all out. And I always find those entertaining, but I know that there are, and I'm not a long time bachelor watcher. I just started watching last year. So I know that the people who have been watching forever aren't really a a big fan of them. But I don't know. I've always liked them because I think it's nice to see how everything ties up and they always check in with the couples because it's been, you know, a couple months since the filming ended. So to see if they're still together or how that's been going. So I've always really liked them. Well, definitely there is no room for disappointment in Bachelor Nation because there is plenty to go about uh, when the time comes. So certainly I I myself might not be watching, but granted, I know many other people will, uh, whether it's in the United States or around the world. They got plenty of those spinoffs in other ways, too, uh, on that end as well. Uh, granted, though, we are going to go to our next story, and I know we were talking a lot about money uh, during the, really mostly the first, second period that we had today. Bruno has more on money, more so in regards to tipping, which I hear is a big issue uh, over there in places. So, Bruno, go ahead. Well, we actually have quite the issue on tipping because many consumers have begun getting fed up with how tipping is, according to them, getting out of hand playing on social media how they are being prompted to tip sometimes at some drive throughs or even for small items such as a basic cup of coffee or even just a muffin. And the biggest chip on their shoulder is now with the adoption of digital payment methods, the prompts appearing on screen could be as high as 30%, which for many customers is ludicrous as the inflation crisis has already hit consumers' pockets quite hard, regardless of the fact that it dropped to a rate of 6.5% this December. And due to the fact that electronic Tipping can't be done just to tip a small amount without notice as a classic tipping jar would. Many customers feel a huge amount of social pressure on their end to not be seen as cheap or a bad person for not tipping a high amount. But the worst part of this, of course, falls on the baristas and servers and other service people who are supposed to receive these tips as we must remember that these people are being paid at or below minimum wage depending on if the state still follows tip credit laws meaning that many of these workers rely on tips for survival, a practice unheard of outside of the U.S. as well. And the Americas, as in Europe, tipping is given on top of normal wages, and in Asia, it can even be considered an insult to tip a server such as in Japan, China, or Korea. This all means that we are getting to a point where change must be implemented to the system, lest servers and workers begin facing further decreases in quality of life. So, honestly, my biggest takeaway is... Should the way waiters and servers be paid change to be like in any other country, especially like Europe? What do you guys think? Granted, I, I think a lot of the tipping kind of, like you said, gets a little bit outrageous every now and again. Granted, I get like delivery drivers it's a little bit different because, again, you know, they're independent contractors technically by, you know, Uber or wherever they're, you know, whatever their delivery service provider or driver is. Because, granted, I went to Denver 
there was what early January, and our Uber driver was talking about how a lot of the fares, Uber gets more of that, like more than fifty percent of that split, probably like sixty sometimes, and the drivers don't really get a lot of that amount. So for a lot of them, they do rely on those trip, those tips, I should say, uh, with those credit laws that you mentioned. And granted, it really is for their survival because a lot of them that might be their day to day job. That might be what they only do if that's the case. I know I went to I think it was it was Grubhub or DoorDash. I got Taco Bell from, and they're like, "Do you want to tip your driver?" But it's like the tip you would give them was like 75 cents. Like 75 cents? Why me only give them 75 cents uh, to go and do that? So I think it varies on where you go, obviously. Uh, like, But things like buying a muffin at a Starbucks, I don't know. I feel like if you order there a lot, maybe it's a little different because then you see them all the time. You get to know them a little bit. But if you're going like one-stop shop at a dry, uh, one of those like uh, rest areas to go and get some Chipotle or something, I don't really think you necessarily need to tip in that instance. Jason, what do we think about that? I totally agree with you. And, you know, I feel like during the COVID pandemic, I was talking to my grandmother about this because she's a big proponent of, uh, you know, getting takeout and you know, she doesn't really like cooking and I don't blame her. But, you know, it's like, I feel like with COVID, it was, you know, a lot of the people that worked these businesses, they called them essential workers. And obviously they were, there were some of the only people working is everywhere else closed. And, you know, there's a heavy reliance on them. So I feel like with that label being created, there's this then big push where it's like, we have to look out for our essential workers. We have to help them. We have to make sure that, you know, they're, they're able to make it through this time. So there's this big push with tipping, especially on takeout. It was like, I remember everywhere you went and a couple of places, they actually, um, rather if, if they weren't recommending tipping, some of them even were, were, were trying to like enforce it. And, you know, obviously just given the way that at least like most of history has gone with in, in regards to tipping, especially for takeout. It's like, don't think about tipping for takeout. Like you're, you're just getting, someone is grabbing you food and, and you're just taking it out of the place. Like no one's delivering it, whatever. Um, so I feel like with, with the pandemic that really shifted how, a lot of people thought about that. But for me, I just view that, you know, again, takeout, that's one of the exceptions I'll make. But if I go in the restaurant, I'm sitting down, obviously I'll tip. If there's any sort of delivery, uh, because I did do DoorDash for multiple years now, just like as like a little side hustle when I need some extra money. And, you know, it's as, as you said, I might get an order where it's $25, but then I'm only getting like five of that. And it's, you know, especially at the cost of gas, it's really hard to try to, you know, just break even and then make a little bit of money. So the tips really are how, especially with delivery, how these people are able to make money. So I just think that it's simply where the tipping needs to be prioritized. But I do think that there's been this push now where it's like everywhere you go, you have to tip. I think that might not, you know, it shouldn't be the case. Jason, I'm curious just quick. So for your, your DoorDash and whatnot, would you usually get a lot of tips with, you know, customers, customers, yeah, well, technically, yes. customers would technically give you those tips or whatnot? Or how, how much on average would you say you would get for tips, if anything? It really, so it was funny, but uh, where I'm at in Montgomery County is a pretty, like, it, there's a whole lot going on. So there are some really wealthy parts and there are some other parts that aren't as wealthy. So it would be based on sometimes how big the order would be, like the percentage that I would get would be bigger, but then there would be some orders I would take that would be massive and it would be in an area that was a little bit less well-to-do and then I would barely get tipped for it. So sometimes what I did, you know, I mean, it's not great, but like I would try to dodge that area because I knew that I wouldn't get tipped very well. Um, so it was really like, yeah, 
you, there's a lot of like planning that goes in it. Like people think you just get in the car, drive, make money, but it's like, you have to be very strategic. And, you know, sometimes you'll get an order where it's such a small order and the distance you have to drive. It's like, again, with the cost of gas, you're going to be losing money. So it's like, you really have to be strategic with the delivery. Now that was at least with DoorDash. I can't speak for Uber Eats or, um, you know, some of the other, um, you know, food delivery services, but yeah, it, it was very much based on just the kindness of the person, you know, that was making the order. So if they were like, okay, we're going to tip you, you know, I, I would love when I would get a tip for seven to $10. So that goes to show you how, you know, you really don't make a whole lot with it. And it's, you really have to keep hitting numbers like that to even do well. So Jason, taking into consideration your experiences and well, what we've seen around us, do you think the government should be changing our labor laws on this? Because especially for like Uber and, and all the DoorDash and all those kind of workers that are technically independent contractors and the company tends to keep most of the money. And if they don't have a good day, they barely break even or actually lose money. Should there be changes on how they are paid so they actually have a living wage? I really do view... You know, when when I did it, I remember there's this special red debit card that you get that it, it's preloaded from DoorDash. And you can get, there's this other card where if you buy gas, it gives you 10% off of how much you spend on gas. Now, that's cool that you're getting anything, but I really feel like if they wanted to find a way where it could be a uniform money-making, uh, you know, like like really remove a lot of the stress on the driver, if these companies could give a some sort of allowance for gas just with how expensive it is right now, um, you know, and I, and I don't think that's something the government could step in and do, but really that's where the majority of drivers were made or, or broken was just with the cost of gas. So if there's some sort of way where these companies had to pay a certain amount for gasoline or based on a percentage or miles driven or something like that, so they could more directly be helping with it. Because again, okay, I can get this special DoorDash card, but with 10% off gas, like, yes, that helps, but it's such a small amount that again, with just how far I'm going to have to drive, upkeep, the amount of damage I'm doing to the car, having to constantly keep stuff, you know, stopping and starting and doing all that, um, you know, just something to kind of offset some of these charges would be great. So I definitely think that if they were to, gas would be something I would say should be at the forefront. It's uh, it's interesting, Bruno, because I know you mentioned the tip credit aspect when it came to that. I just looked up for New York, you know, labor laws super quick, and apparently New York State does allow the tip credit for those employers to take uh, those tips, at least in account for the minimum wage itself. Uh, so maybe New York-wise, there can be a difference. We hope so, uh, but we can't necessarily guarantee anything for that. Any any last thing you want to add in terms of this story? Anything that kind of jumped out at you, if anything? The last thing I do want to add is that, in my opinion, we should be changing these laws because I think it's very unfair that a person's livelihood has to depend on the kindness of strangers rather than on their employer, especially in a very volatile economy that we have now because if we go into recession – Tips are going to go down. That is a guarantee. Yeah, I was I was going to mention at least super quick. There was uh, Amy's Baking Company on Kitchen Nightmares. Have you ever heard about that? It was Amy and Sammy, and they were a, a baking company. In, I think it was Arizona. I could be wrong on that. But there was a whole instance in where Gordon Ramsay was in, and then Sammy is like, we don't tip our servers. 
and then Gordon's like, what? You don't tip your servers. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you got to tip them. It's it's You're breaking the law. And so it, it was a whole crazy thing. Uh, but granted, hopefully, uh, a lot of tipped employees won't end up like that experience, and they're able to go and live for their lives uh, in the wage they deserve to have, if that's the case. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to go more into money that we have coming through over here. Uh, I actually did an interview with uh, Dr. Gregory DeFreitas over there from the Department of Economics here at Hofstra in regards to pay transparency for New York City and New York State laws in regards to that. So we are going to get to that story now. When going on job sites such as LinkedIn or Indeed, not a lot of employers will post salary ranges publicly to prospective employees. However, with new regulations in New York City and New York State that have or will be implemented, employers will no longer be able to hide behind the metaphorical digital curtain. Here to discuss this trend and what it means for the workforce is Dr. Gregory DeFreitas, the Augustus B. Weller Chair and Professor of Economics and the Director of the Center for Labor and Democracy at Hofstra University. Dr. DeFreitas, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you. So as we already mentioned in the intro, New York State isn't necessarily requiring jobs to have salary listings until September of 23, but New York City's already implemented this mandate itself. So what's been the initial impact in the city in terms of the salary mandate? Well, it's very early, of course. They're requiring it for all firms with four or more employees. So it's quite sweeping. California, for example, limits it to employers with 15 or more employees. So we have a little bit of evidence now, uh, but it's growing because more and more states have gotten interested in this. There are bills now in quite a few state capitals about some form of salary transparency. The very early findings are, are mostly positive. I think it's fair to say there are some early findings of a kind of shrinkage of the the pay gap between lower paid and the very highest paid workers. There's also, again, very early findings that this seems to boost morale among at least some workers, which can contribute to higher productivity, to lower turnover, which is very important for companies to save money. So there's a lot of hope with some empirical backing now that it's going to lead to uh, a, a bit of a reduction in the extreme pay inequality that we have in the United States today. And you mentioned those initial findings, and there was this New York Times article that uh, by Sarah Kessler that was done more so on that they had found more that the gender pay gap itself had improved by 50% in a recent study. But there was some limited what they called informants-based incentives for companies. So let's say that in the events, uh, higher wage, higher performing workers didn't necessarily get a pay increase. What ramifications would there be, if anything, if higher performers aren't recognized or incentivized for their work? Well, there have been a few studies uh, that have suggested that higher pay employees, the people who are the big winners in these companies, that some of them are not that thrilled about others finding out what they're making and how much lower their own salaries are. So yes, yeah, some could take umbrage at that and it might negatively affect their performance. But on the other hand, they're a relatively small fraction of the typical firm. And insofar as the, the broad swath of workers are concerned, you know, there's a lot of misinformation or just lack of any information about what the higher paid people in the firm are making. So on the one hand, critics say, well, this is going to disincentivize the highest paid workers. Uh, but I think we can pretty confidently say that uh, the, the most productive people, the most skilled people, are typically going to do all right. I mean, in any halfway decent firm. So, you know, where are they going to go as these laws spread around the country? Whereas among other employees who maybe are, you know, lower paid or middle management, 
the more they know about you know what people higher up are making, what that can do is to incentivize them to try to move up, you know, to get the new training or whatever it takes to get into higher paying occupations. Because there's 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 been such a secrecy about pay in America. I mean, most people I know in, in the jobs I had before I became an academic, uh, most people are actively prevented by employers. Often when you when you get the job in small print, it says you promise you won't disclose your pay or ask others about their pay. So there's massive ignorance. And as a result, um, some sociological and economic surveys show that a lot of middle middle level employees wildly underestimate how much people above them are getting paid. So if they're underestimating what others are getting paid above them, that creates relatively little, little incentive for them to, you know, again, to work harder, to get training, to move up into those higher paying jobs. So that long story short, potentially it could in fact lead to increases in productivity and upward mobility among middle level and lower level workers. Now, now you mentioned that incentivization, I guess, for employers, you know, to do better, to get the training and all of that, but how will that necessarily affect the work environment, right? The relationships people have in a sense, if they know that other people are making more money than you, as you said before, than not have that privacy in there with those salary ranges. David Card, who's an economist at Berkeley who won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago, he's a labor economist. And he's one of the, the new breed of labor economists who really range across psychology, sociology, you know, multiple disciplines. And he did a study recently in which they surveyed employees, comparing employees at firms with pay transparency with firms without pay transparency. And he found, in fact, that there was grumbling, that there were, that when people found out how little they were making compared to others, it definitely contributed to some degree of, of dissatisfaction among employees. But again, the more this spreads, the more that information is out there. And we know that fairness, fairness at work is a huge, huge issue because if, if, if working people don't feel they're being treated with respect and paid fairly, if they feel that some people who maybe are louder or better negotiators with the boss are being paid more uh, for, for less or the same amount of work, that, that translates into job dissatisfaction too. So, you know, we can cut both ways. It can lead to dissatisfaction, but sometimes dissatisfaction can be good to motivate employees to challenge what's going on uh, maybe even to, you know, push for things like unions, which, of course, we've been seeing the last few years, more and more people saying, I've had enough, you know, I think we should all get together and have a union, or at the very least, to push for employers to be as transparent as possible before and, and during job interviews about the jobs that, are, uh, that, they're, that they're hiring for. Now, now, granted, I know there's always the issue of, you know, obviously employees won't be able to see these salaries, but not only that, other companies will now be able to see these salaries publicly if that's the case as well. So how would that necessarily impact the competitiveness of the labor market if other companies see, you know, company A has a higher salary than our company? How does that work through there? Well, the laws are, I don't think she mentioned this in the Times article, but, but the laws differ by state. So most states at the moment, they, they only require employers reveal the salary range at the interview level. And for some of them, they only have to reveal it 
when they make a job offer, when they say, okay, we decided to hire you, and by the way, uh, the pay range that you can expect is between, you know, 50000 and 60000 something like that. New York and California now are require, they kind of stand out, requiring that all job ads, you know, so before people even apply, job ads now have to say what the salary range is, which is huge because I know, for example, my, when my when my daughter was looking for a job, she was constantly frustrated that um, employers, including a lot of academic institutions, were not saying they might have you know two, three page job descriptions, but nowhere in there did they have the pay. So then it pushes all the onus onto the individual. Now, as more and more states move towards the New York and California model where they have to put it in ads, you're right. That's where employers will, as well as employees, employers will be searching around through ads to see whether their pay level is competitive with other employers' pay levels. And any economist, I think, will tell you, we all were trained in the, in the view that competitiveness is good, right? The more information, the more competition on a, on a level playing field, the better, the more efficient the job market works. So I, th I think that's got to be a good thing for both employees and employers. Before this, what they've been doing, they've been using very gross industry-level information. For example, if you're in high tech, you're looking at the, you know, the telecom industry, for example, or the computer industry's average pay. And that's really useless for uh, you know, the, the, the wild array of different job titles in, uh, in these industries. So now we're going to have granular company-level pay, and we, we haven't, have had enough of that in the past, especially in the public sector, that research suggests it does raise the competitive level for, uh, for employers. So, of course, you allude to the you know, efficiency of having paid transparency and all the benefits of competitiveness in that sense. So what would you say is the future of paid transparency itself? Do you see it more so that states will just continue to en enact these laws? Or do you think on a national scale, let's say Congress might get involved and put some national transparency law in place? Well, the, the Obama administration years ago did put something in place, but only covering federal contractors. So the federal government plus the private sector that had contracts with the federal government where they couldn't punish people if they talked about their pay and they had to reveal you know, a certain level of pay transparency at the interview level. And as I said, more and more states are looking into this now. I'm, I'm suspecting that a lot of employers may well up their opposition to this as they watch what's happening nationwide because what it does is it does, again, lead to more information among employees, and it takes some of the control, some of the, the pay control out of the hands of employers. Even South Carolina, um, a very Republican conservative state, this year there are bills in South Carolina towards pay transparency. So I think it's going to be a, a more of an uphill battle for employers to oppose this. But I think what they're going to do is, this is only pay after all, so there's a whole lot of other compensation gimmicks out there, right? So employers can toe the line with others in terms of pay, but they can play all kinds of games in terms of offering, you know, elaborate benefits packages, health insurance, commissions, bonuses. You'll probably see a lot more bonus pay 
um, the way, which will still make some uh, high-paid workers, you know, very rich and distinguish them from the rest. So, you know, inequality is not going to go away. And I think this may just raise the pay transparency argument onto the benefit transparency level in coming years. And finally, Dr. DeFreitas, before we let you go, uh, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Is there any particular researcher studying yourself here at Hofstra? Anything you'd like to add? Sure. I, I, I encourage students to get in touch with us. The, the website for our research center is hofstra.edu slash CLD, Center for Labor and Democracy, CLD. And we're linked in with the Labor Studies Program at Hofstra which gives a major and a minor degree in labor studies. So, you know, students have the opportunity if they're interested to, for example, minor in labor studies, major in economics or business and look at issues like these. So, so definitely reach out to us. Uh, you can email us at hofstra.edu slash labor studies. And uh, we'd love to, uh, to talk to students who find these questions of interest. And again, that's Dr. Gregory DeFreitas, the Augustus B. Weller Chair and Professor of Economics and the Director of the Center for Labor and Democracy at Hofstra University. Dr. DeFreitas, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. Take care. Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life, national news, and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. And our thanks again to Dr. Dr. Gregory DeFreitas there uh, from the Hofstra University Department of Economics and Labor Studies over there. Bruno, before we get to the end of our hour here, if you just want to fill us in a little bit on how the whole tech industry situation is going there with all the layoffs in the land. Well, we have a lot of chaos because not only are a lot of tech companies letting go of workers, we have just a new wave of layoffs from Google of over 1,200 workers, especially in California, their home base, where you wouldn't expect this kind of thing. So they were warned for about six days just because of the Warren Law by California, but this is affecting a lot of their senior and directorial staff, which is something we'd never see in any kind of recession. Normally, white-collar workers are you know, left alone. It's mostly the, the guys below. And not only this, it just continues the trend because a lot of these companies were not only, as many economists are speculating, overvaluated, but they were relying too much on a bull market, which is you know expecting just continuous growth the whole time. And now this has just added to the 107,000 job losses from since last year from the entire public or private tech companies. And they continue to, fund, to try to rebalance their budget because Google is actually slowing down a lot. So they're not only making a lot less money, they actually, there's actually fear that they may actually start to lose money because Twitter's already losing money. Tesla's already o overvaluated as there's not enough cars out there. So they're starting to think, is it really that high-valued? And Apple's also having slowed down on their, on their growth due to the whole crisis that has been in China recently. So what do you guys think? Are we seeing a slowdown of Silicon Valley? I, I know I mentioned during our intermission during the interview here, but more, more so on the aspect of a lot of tech companies. I know, Bruno, you mentioned this, you know, the, the too big to fail aspect, right? Everyone's thinking that, you know, your Amazons, your Googles are going to be around forever and just keep going and making everything they need. And granted, we had that with the dot-com bubble, right? Everybody's thinking, oh, everybody can have a URL and you're going to make money all the time. Uh, so granted, I think that's definitely a different aspect through there. But I know, at least for myself, I think, the pandemic in terms of what tech companies thought could make out of it was different as well. Uh, but granted, that's that's for otherwise to need. Jason, anything to add for this? 
I was going to say, I'm not surprised with Apple having their struggles just because I feel like people with having such little expendable income to be able to buy additional products and especially stuff like tech where, you know, it's important, but it's not an absolute necessity. I could see how it will lose value. And, you know, I just feel like with this economic situation, it's not surprising because I feel like all areas, all walks, all industries have been affected in some way, shape or form. But, you know, I thought maybe they could survive it a little bit more just because, especially for like Google, I mean, how many people over the pandemic were you know, on the internet every day. And still, I mean, people that just use it for their job, I figured that that wouldn't be as impacted, but again, everywhere is getting hurt. So I guess I'm not surprised that they're also being hurt. And just a final note, what do you think the impact of this massive layoffs will have on the current economic crisis, especially, well, you know, being such specialized workers, they can't get jobs in their sector that easily again. I I, tech, I think t being with tech being an industry leader, I think it's going to be really difficult to try and see how things can be bolstered up by the economy. But like Jason said, people spending, you know, $1,400, let's say, for a new iPhone, you're not going to get a lot of people doing that if they can't afford the groceries on the table, if they can't, as we already mentioned, you know, get tips for their wages and things like that. How in the world is that going to impact them in terms of what they're able to buy or purchase through that way as well? Well, and the... The biggest thing is, honestly, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of those works having to go for lower jobs. Like, you know, instead of their original position they graduated from, they're going to have to be taking more like more lower jobs. So I think this is going to be quite critical for our economy. And so otherwise, we will get to your top of the hour now. We're going to go into the second spot. See you then. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro studio. R-H-U. Hempstead. You discovered a cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. W-W-R-H-U. Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Welcome, everybody, to hour number two of the of the Hasha Morning Wake Up Call here. Again, I'm Luke Farrell. We got Bruno Valdez in studio again. Jason Wyke and Hannah Vincent here with us. Uh, granted, for our second hour, some stories on dolphins coming up in the Bronx River. Uh, also, some issues when it comes uh, to, granted, other things on there. Um, is Satanism on the rise? We're going to find out about that one. And also, how you're learning to party it up over the age of 65. We will get to that and more on the morning wake-up call. Stay tuned. And 
And, of course, hour two for the morning wake-up call where, of course, we have Long Island Life, national news, and international issues. All of that and more will be in this second hour coming on through. Uh, so, granted, Bruno, I know we got those local headlines here that we got over there. Feel free to take it away for us. Of course, Luke. So, there's a lot going on the island and New York City this week because the LIRR service has started in Grand Central Terminal. A Long Island family is suing Meta for harming daughter, their daughter over Instagram use. New York City is undergoing a new census to count the number of homeless people within it. A Long Island father and son have been arrested after being accused for animal cruelty after finding a, over a dozen cats in hoarding conditions. And a group of Bronx merchants have taken upon themselves to combat crime by hiring private security for their commercial strip. I'm, I'm definitely excited for that uh, Grand Central Madison line over there because, granted, you need that LIRR connection to Grand Central. You haven't really had that for a little while over here, so that'd be nice to get into the city if need be. Any any of those headlines you're most interested in if you, uh, if you had, had something to take away? I'd say I never expected the Bronx one because it's kind of alarming that crime is getting that bad that you have to hire private security. That sounds more like, you know, something you hear in a movie, not in real life. Yeah, that's like that's like if you're a celebrity, not if you're living on, you know, one of the city streets, if anything else. So definitely something to look out for if need be. That will certainly keep an eye on in future stories. Uh, Jason, I know we always keep an eye on that weather, but, you know, it's pretty much staying the same. But what, what do we have over there for us? Uh, so for the weather forecast, it is currently 47 degrees outside of our WRG studios here at Hofstra. Up in the sky, cloudy. You know, we talked about it earlier, but throughout the day, it should only get colder, eventually dropping into the 30s and low 30s during the evening hours. So a pretty cloudy day, but at least it's not as wet and rainy as yesterday was. Definitely a, a wet and rainy day, as you mentioned on the top of the hour there, so... Hopefully not as bad as you mentioned on that case. So we'll see how it goes uh, for hopefully more weather, but better weather, maybe sweater weather. Um, but we'll see how that goes when the time is there. Uh, but Jason, I know we mentioned it at the top of the hour here for that dolphin story. Feel free to tell us uh, how and why they are coming back over there to the Bronx River. Absolutely. So we're currently in our Long Island block. And although this isn't directly on the island, it's pretty darn close so dolphins have been spotted frolicking in New York City's Bronx River. This is an encouraging sign of improving health of the waterway that has for many years befouled as a sewer for industrial waste. A pair of dolphins was seen gliding through the river's waters on Monday. The New York City Park, the New York City's Parks Department confirmed near a small park in the city's Bronx borough. The Bronx River rises north of New York City and cuts through the Bronx before terminating in the East River. The estuary that separates the Bronx and Manhattan from the borough of Queens and Brooklyn. Quote unquote, it's true the dolphins were spotted in the Bronx River this week, the Parks Department gleefully tweeted. Quote unquote, this is great news. It shows that the decades long effort to restore the river as a healthy habitat is working. We believe these dolphins naturally found their way to the river in search of fish. Dolphins have not been seen in the river for over five years, but there has been an increase in sightings of the marine mammals in the waters around New York as the industrial pollution that blighted the region has eased. The scientists previously set up underwater microphones at aquatic locations around New York to listen for the distinctive clicking noises emitted by bottlenose dolphins and found that they are particularly active in the harbor that separates New York and New Jersey. A pair of dolphins were seen in the waters off Brooklyn last year, surprising onlookers. 
The Bronx River suffered for many years as it became a natural dumping ground for waste running from nearby industrial plants. In recent decades, however, industrial activity near the river has declined and municipalities have agreed not to push sewage into the waterway. City authorities stock the Bronx River with herring every year to lure the dolphins, who eat 20 pounds of fish a day. Quote, unquote, we've come a long way across multiple decades of environmental improvement, water quality cleaning, better environmental stewardship, better relations, all of which the overall environment and then leads to recovery of these systems, said Howard Rosenbaum, a dolphin expert at the Wildlife Conservation Society. He also said, I think it's just great that these things are happening, and hopefully the overall environmental recovery for these urban waterways continues, and we continue to see marine wildlife, their habitats, and their prey flourish. So who's going on a trip with me to the Bronx River to maybe see some dolphins? Who would think in New York City, right near the Bronx, that you'd be able to look at the river and see dolphins? I, I just think that it's really such a great story because, again, why why weren't they visible for so many years? Because of how polluted and dirty you know the, the Bronx River, unfortunately, got with us industrial waste. So just curious with everyone, I mean, did anyone even think that this was something that happened, that dolphins would be swimming up and around New York City? No, I definitely wouldn't have expected that, if anything else. I would certainly take a trip with you, Jason. So we want to go and do a do an on-site report for the morning wake-up call and go and uh, go down to see the dolphins. That would be pretty fun. Uh, but granted, at, at least, you know, you hear a lot of the issues when it comes to environmentalism and, you know, all the bad things that are going on around the world and all that with everything there. But it's good, it's good to hear the good news. You know, it's good to hear some benefits that are going on through there as well. Because granted, a lot of these, you know, fish and ecosystems and estuaries, as you mentioned, you know, really have been depleted by a lot of the well, – mostly human done, uh, you know, treacheries that we've had in terms of waste and, you know, land dumpings and things of that nature that really have just eroded the ecosystems around us for the, you know, I guess the detriment of the world and ourselves for that matter. Uh, so granted, definitely good to see that we have that aspect back again, but certainly didn't expect dolphins because, you know, you figure you see dolphins at places like SeaWorld and things like that, or, you know, maybe at the zoo, but it's great to see them now, obviously, you know, in their natural habitat, and especially with or the River, of course, uh, to go and see that as well. Uh, so good to see that that's on the rise too. Bruno, have we have we seen a lot of dolphins around? Do we think this is kind of a, uh, I guess, extraordinary case in this case? Or do you think this is probably happening more often if that's the case? No, I'd say this is something that should be happening more often and should be used as a benchmark for all environmental efforts across the United States, I mean, even the world, because a lot of rivers and estuaries have been polluted by industrial waste. It's just, as Jason said, it a natural way to just say, eh, might as well use it for dumping, right? So I'd say that this should be used as a thermostat in our, well, great state of New York as, as a way to still keep an eye on how we are managing our clean water, especially for our rivers that, you know, flow all the way from upstate New York. And we should be keeping an eye out if we ever start, like, adding more industrialization back into New York on how we're keeping this river because that will tell us how well the companies are actually treating in the environment if we still keep seeing this much marine biology in this river that means it's not being polluted and we're actually doing good efforts. So Jason was there was there any other information in terms of what other species might come to the Bronx River did they have any indication of what the effort was there or do they know itself what the next steps are in terms of using anything for the river? So for the river, it this wasn't an effort directly aimed at the dolphins. It was more simply that the conditions were so horrible that something had to be done. 
So it was obviously they stopped, you know, all the all the companies in that area agreed to stop. And, you know, there were more efforts to try to clean. And then eventually what they did, um, since I stated in the story, they released herring. That's one of the main um, fish that, you know, at least in, in this area that the bottlenose are, are a little bit more attracted to. And what they do is that every year they release hundreds of these herring and then they reproduce and they obviously have kids and so on and so forth. So they said that the population of them has grown so large that, you know, essentially what they think happened was these dolphins were able to find out where this population was. They followed it and it was towards the Bronx River. And usually what would happen is the dolphins would head up towards it. And then it was such a polluted area. It was so disgusting. And even the dolphins would kind of get a sense that they would kind of pivot away and then go other directions. And because the fish then would die, there would be nothing there. Nothing would really go there. And then that's why now that it's getting so much cleaner, they keep continuing to release. That's what's bringing these here. And I mean, you know, possibly you could see more. Um, this isn't something where they're they're like, it's an everyday event. But it is just very encouraging to see that, again, you know, it's New York. This is a major industrial area. Obviously, I'm sure the waste that went in there is probably, you know, dare I say, like one of the worst at, at its peak, probably one of the worst and like dirtiest kind of dumping situations in the country. So the fact that, you know, we're able to see reassuring signs from New York, I feel like this is a challenge to any city on, um, you know, a, a coastal area that shares a body of water to just simply you know really put in an effort to try to conserve these areas keep them clean because who knows i mean maybe is there a a, a new tourism that you could bring in that you know rather it's dolphin viewing or other species that are able to come in and again as, as we brought up with the whole story the ultimate effort is just because you know water is life and you can't just disrespect it in that way and 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 put all this you know you should be dumping waste anywhere period but especially in in your bodies of water where you know that's where people are getting their their beverages and rather if it's not that where these aquatic uh, mammals are living and and other marine life so you know i think overall the the main point was just to get this body of water clean and then eventually it developed into now look at all the other benefits that we can gain from it and we can only hope for more benefits after the fact. So we'll certainly see how this goes. And, hey, maybe more dolphins and more species will come up as a result. So that will be great to see uh, through the waterways of New York over there. Uh, but nevertheless, we are going to go and shift over to Hannah Vincent's report right after we get uh, to a little little Nas X. Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM WRHU. Welcome back, everybody. Of course, Lil Nas X, industry baby over there off of Montero, if that is the case. Uh, granted, I at least before we get to Paris Hilton's baby in this case, uh, I will note Justin Bieber actually sold his music rights uh, for $200 million, not only about, I'd say, a, a day or go or so at this point. Uh, so definitely something to also point out through there. Uh, but otherwise, Hannah, feel free to bring us up on the next installment of the Hilton uh, legacy over here. On Tuesday, January 24th, Paris Hilton announced on Instagram that she and her husband, Carter Ream, welcomed their first baby into the world. Hilton made this announcement by posting a photo of the baby boy's hand wrapped around her thumb with the caption, you are already loved beyond worlds, with the blue heart emoji. The 41-year-old has been married to Reem for over a year. Their three-day Bel Air wedding was in November 2021, and the couple has voiced that they wanted to have kids straight away, with Hilton adding, quote, we want three or four. 
The baby was allegedly born through surrogacy, and while that has not been confirmed by either party, we do know that Hilton hasn't been pregnant during the last nine months. When Hilton posted the announcement, there were many congratulations from celebrities, including Kris Jenner, Demi Lovato, and Lindsay Lohan. Hilton did an interview with People about her new son and said, quote, it has been my dream to be a mother. She proceeds to talk about how they have wanted a baby since they've been married and that they started the IVF process in 2021. A few months ago, fans started wondering why Hilton wasn't having a baby since she's always talked about wanting one, but she responded by saying she and Reem wanted to focus on being newlyweds first. However, Hilton's mom, Kathy Hilton, told E! News that the couple was struggling with infertility issues. However, Paris refuted that statement, saying, quote, I don't know where she got that. It's not never been a struggle at all to TMZ. Either way, it is great to see that Hilton finally gets to be a mom, and I, along with the rest of our fans, am excited for the name reveal. For the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Hannah Vincent. I was going to say, yeah, there was no name. I was like, what's the what's the name of the baby? Like That's that's always the best part. But granted, that's that's great for them, which is nice to see. So maybe they'll make a reality show out of it. I know if they do, I'll probably watch it. Why not? Uh, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, granted, I, I know at least, you know, anything for in vitro fertilization, obviously, it, you know, it's, it's a tough and long process, if anything else. But granted to see that if you do have any of those issues, whether her mom says or not, uh, granted, it's great that the process did work for them uh, through surrogacy, if that's the case. So definitely congrats to the Hiltons on that, if anything else. Bruno, anything to add at all? Well, if, you were, if we're going to make a reality show out of the baby, I'd call him like the prince of the hotels or something like that because, well, you know, he certainly is going to live like one. The the heir of Hilton. Although technically Paris is technically the heir, but the second heir. We can do the heir and not the spare, right? We got the Prince Harry uh, book there, so not the spare, but the heir. So that's a, that's a plus for there for you now. you got to be careful with those naming because if not, we're going to end up on some Game of Thrones kind of thing. No, we don't. We don't need some Tyrion Lannister stuff, that's for sure. So we'll make sure that's not the case, but... Who knows? We'll see how it goes. But granted, I know we do have another story. And of course, Paris Hilton being, uh, I guess, uh, around the spot. But uh, while we also have some other spots around, uh, one big thing, of course, is traffic safety, if not, especially on the island itself. Um, granted, AAA said that the Long Island Expressway is the most congested place during the holiday season. Uh, and also data from the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, uh, sorry, Association, uh, of course, that organization you always see that's like, ooh, they have the crash dummies, but they're safe. That's them. Uh, they gave rating of New York's roads as the most dangerous. Um, both of these issues will most likely result in a bunch of trove of accidents uh, throughout anything else. Uh, However, thankfully, there's a lot of great people who are out there to save the day, pitch in, help out if anything does occur, if that's the case, as New Yorkers often do. Uh, and granted, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, of course, being a holiday travel season for a lot of uh, Americans, uh, Susan Kaiser Denise's car had burst into flames after striking the median and then flipping over, according to News 12 Long Island. Um, thankfully, though, people who had witnessed the incident had come to the aid and gave a resuscitation procedures as needed. Kaiser Denise is still currently in critical condition though at Stony Brook Hospital so we're hoping that she gets better through there. Um, yet her family is extremely grateful for those who had gone to her help and aid for safety. Uh, granted, I know that we talked uh, about this with Dan Schwartz about we had an interview with them for the Hempstead Turnpike, of course, being the dangerous roadway for bicyclists uh, out there. But what what would you say for the fact that the expressways and, you know, anything really for roadways in New York State just tends to be so congested and has those issues uh, constantly with traffic or crashes or things like that when you when you wonder about that? 
Well, I'd say it kind of comes obviously from New York City and Long Island being very densely populated. So uh, that's quite obvious. But I, what I would say is that maybe we should be looking into expanding our roadways or adding more highways to it because there is some space still left on Long Island on the western part especially where most of the congestion is as Suffolk tends to be a lot more sparse but we should really be looking into that because or into other ways to lessen the congestion because of course there we got to take two parts into this road rage and the amount of cars on the road because anyone that experiences road rage and this has been proven by doctors uh, you any of our owners can look into this afterwards people tend to lose control there's even been shootings because of road rage so we do need to lower our congestions to lower those incidents of road rage so that people will, you know, and naturally will lessen the amount of accidents. So I'd say our biggest concern would be lessening the amount of cars on each road, be it by more roads or by changing around times, anything like that. What do you guys think? So I know, I know, Jason, you're, you're also an out-of-stater. So what, what would you make of the makeup for New York roadways and things of that nature? And how, what would be the difference in terms of that and also Pennsylvania in a sense where you are? Yeah, so I just found when I moved here last year, uh, going to Hofstra, it was like I couldn't believe the level of congestion and just, uh, you know, I found that in Pennsylvania, we have some pretty big roadways, obviously 95 that runs through 276, 309, 202. We have a lot of really big roadways that have up to four or five lanes, but really they never have a level of traffic that I think garners that. So why do we have these giant, massive highways and then New York doesn't? You know, I, especially as you get the the worst part, the part that I dread. I always, every night, as I'm, you know, and, and tomorrow actually I'm going back to the island and, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking about it, but it's, you know, you have to get that timing perfectly right after you get off the Veranzano because that New York traffic going in and out of the island is so brutal. But why can't they make these lanes bigger? I mean, when they built the roadways, I guess if they built them a really long time ago, maybe it was when car travel wasn't as popular, but it's funny. Um, my girlfriend had an idea and I, I thought it was a bit of a stretch, but I thought if, if there were to be something that maybe could work, what if they built right along where maybe like the belt parkway is where maybe out on the water again, I know that this would be billions of dollars and a many, many year project, but like out on the waterway, what if maybe they built one of those like mega highways or something like that, where then there could be a more, okay, here's long Island traffic. Here's New York city traffic trying to just separate them. So that way when the two meet, it's not as intense as it is. I mean, that, um, you know, like I, I it's just such a tough issue because to, try to solve the issue, you know, you, you let, let's say you try to expand the Bell Parkway or one of those roadways, right? Then you'd have to stop traffic for years and whatever and when you're working on these projects. So it's like in trying to fix it, you then just be making it worse. So it's kind of just a situation where, I mean, I hate to say that the island is stuck, but I mean, yeah, and may, may, maybe it is a, a giant mega highway out on, on the Atlantic. I, I don't know, but I'll tell you, it is some brutal traffic i mean i i've never seen anything like it and you know nationally the, the fact that it, it has this reputation already i mean i'm not surprised it's the the biggest urban area in the country one of the biggest in the world um but you know i i do think in a country that is as developed as we are maybe we could figure out a better way somehow to just make it work a little bit better i mean shucks at least for my drives to and from it's horrible when you get caught in that traffic 
Yeah, and I agree with you, Jason, because we actually have the capacity to do those micro projects as seen, you know, by the Hong Kong Bridge, by the bridge member in Crimea. So what I'd say is the best thing we could do is maybe like a bridge that connects New Jersey with the island, because a lot of people are also traveling out of state, especially during holidays. And maybe we want to Connecticut for the same reason or a little bit at least to upstate New York to avoid having to go everything through New York and Coney Island, because that's kind of a lot of congestion those times. And maybe with said uh, bridge to New Jersey, also have a bit of a detour into Coney Island or into Manhattan to avoid those congestions. What do you guys think? Well, to your point on the Connecticut Bridge, they actually had some plans back in the day from the island to make one across over there for Connecticut. Granted, you have a lot of the ferries and whatnot out there. If you go either to Port Jefferson, I believe, in Orient Point, I've actually taken them a number of times to my brother of the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, but granted, they don't really have the bridge there. But why? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but granted, I'm sure construction, you got to look environmental-wise, as we've already mentioned on shows before. Uh, so that's obviously an aspect there, too. Uh, granted, I don't really know about the whole super highway deal i think there should be more lanes obviously because i think it's just too congested that way which is having your two maybe three lane highways but granted i think a lot of the time when you look at these roadways you don't necessarily see the impact sometimes that it might cause and things like that uh, obviously robert moses was you know the main developer or anything for the island whatever construction that he made uh, but granted it's in robert carroll's the power broker of course you never read it uh you know it's massive book it's like a thousand pages uh, i did a little bit for an assignment that i had and there was one indication that there was the cross bronx expressway very very you know short strip of you know roadway not really a ton but you know there was a lot of uh, housing that was predominantly by black residents that were over there they had a bunch of these apartment complexes and things like that uh, and lo and behold uh, they were pretty much forced out of their land they were then uh, basically building was then torn down to make way for the parkway itself. Uh, granted, hopefully we've gone past all of that uh, in some sense to respect people's, you know, boundaries and all that and not lead to some, you know, racist practices and things of that nature. But I think a lot of the times with building these roadways, a lot of the people that live on the land aren't necessarily considered and it's more, here's everything for convenience's sake, but not for everyone's general interest and things like that. So I don't know, that's just me. Uh, but granted, do we have anything uh, else you might want to see through the roadways anything that you might want to work out through for any uh, highway indicators around for transportation well we talked about it luke this is with our old thursday crew back in i think september when we had um that discussion about the hempstead turnpike definitely you know towards hofstra's campus and again it's such a major roadway that in trying to improve it it would cause a lot of traffic but i mean there are so many potholes so many bumps, so many cracks. So that that's definitely Hempstead Turnpike could get some love, even just you know flatten it out a little bit more. I definitely be all for that. Yeah, and I also agree that even if it causes some traffic momentarily, we do need to be looking into that. And in regards to what you were saying, Luke, about considering the people whenever we are expanding any kind of roadways, uh, we'd obviously have to either at least have a, a surveying of the area and a asking and census of those living on the areas where we wish to expand which I kind of, well, going back to the point of the Atlantic Bridge, would actually kind of be better on that respect since, well, you know, no one's living in the actual water. And in terms of environmental concerns, yes, I understand the part that it's, you know, we can't disturb the marine life that much, but if we do it limitedly, in a, sorry, in a limited fashion, I'd say it could be done a lot more efficiently because stopped cars cause a lot more CO2 than having a couple of columns in the water. What do you guys think on that? Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I, I think it's just a matter of if you make that bridge, 
what what's the real impact then of who's going to utilize that bridge? Is it going to be more people from the east end? Are you going to get more people coming, you know, from the city or the middle of the island to try and use that bridge? And then how does that thing get congested? Especially like you mentioned with the east end, only having like those, you know, one, two very, you know, tight roadways. Then if that gets congested, if anything else, I think that's just the other thing to look at for there. But then it's a matter of do residents want to have the bridge? Is that really an indicator there? I, I would feel like they would at this point, considering how much traffic there's really been, as we've already mentioned. But I, I just don't know if there's any work on this project to be done uh, that can go forward from there. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. There's definitely things to consider and work through. So we'll definitely see how that goes in future time. Uh, but otherwise, we're just going to head right on in uh, to the last and final category that we have for our blocks for today. Uh, so, Bruno, please go ahead. I know we have granted a lot of stuff when it comes to, you know, Generation Z, of course, they like to call us. They say I generation sometimes. Uh, but granted, how is that influence, of course, with the politics of all of that when it comes to social media? So go ahead. Well, we're having an unorthodox changing of the guard, well, per se, as that's when, you know, generations change power in a nation. And Gen Z's entry is actually being very influenced by Instagram and TikTok, of all things, because right now we finally have a congressman of our generation, Maxwell Frost, in Florida. As he has been elected the ripe age of 25, I know, pretty young, to the United, and he is primarily known by many of our generation due to his high media popularity on platforms such as Instagram and TikTok, as I mentioned before, where he dances with other constituencies and incorporates news lying into debates and political issues, making him a highly attractive pick at the polls for those looking for a more youthful, personable, and energized representative, according to People magazine. But his biggest rise to fame was as an organizer for the March for Our Lives movement following the Parkland school shooting. With his popularity, he bet everything on his political campaign as Democrat Val Demings announced that he would not be seeking re-election, to which many people called for Frost to run. But this is now a landmark election because it marks the beginning of the changing of the guard, as I mentioned, in our government, meaning that the baby boomers and Gen Xers will now be slowly being replaced with millennial and Gen Z politicians as they retire, go out of politics, all those kind of things that always happens in the next two to three decades, I'd say, of elections, which will surely be a, bring a large political shift in our nation as seen by the way millennials and Gen Z view and address various issues in our country. And it's been seen how we tend to take a lot of issues to social media, for example, if, uh, for example, the Black Lives Matter, Matter uh, protests were really spread a lot by Twitter and Instagram, and a lot of guys you know, of our generation can agree on that. And... I'd, my biggest question is, what do you guys think we can expect from the entrance of our generation into po the political world? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say it's your political movement uh, spot. Obviously, I think the first real tipping point we could see through that was probably the Arab Spring, of course, out there uh, around, what, 2011, 2012 now at this point. Uh, so granted, that obviously was a main catalyst, of course, for a lot of these political protest movements. Uh, anything like you mentioned with the Black Lives Matter movement, anything through there, Me Too, of course. Uh, so a lot of those in that instance. Um, but you don't really see a lot of that in terms of the candidates that you really have uh, on these social platforms because, granted, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of them tend to be over the age of 65, 70, uh, and not really be able to utilize the social media platforms. Let's say their interns might do it. They themselves don't really utilize that. But I think what's different with Representative Frost here is obviously he's been utilizing the platform himself and knows how to deal with this, knows how to talk to the generation, as you already mentioned, which is great to see. Uh, granted, we'll see how much that can influence voters and maybe get people to the polls if anything else, because of course that's always a big deal. I know celebrities will be like, you know, get to the polls. You're a celebrity. I mean, I don't know how much sway it's going to have or anything like that. Uh, but granted, could have some influence. Uh, I 
had a mass media studies, uh, mass media politics and policy making class. And we actually went over this whole thing about how there were other candidates who were also trying to get into the fold, like making TikToks and stuff, but they weren't really with the generation. So I think a lot of the times it was more cringy material, if anything, not really uh, stuff that was very enticing to the younger generation. But it's, it's good to see that we have that. But granted, I will always say this. You got to get term limits in there, people. If we want to get people that are in the younger generation and make a change and make a difference, we can't have the same ideas and the same motions that are going on throughout the country that we have. We don't have new faces to go and show uh, what the country can also be in different areas as well. So just on the soapbox there, uh, Jason, what what would you say? It, it, now, granted, I don't have TikTok. I don't have Instagram, so I'm not really on the social feeds. But what would you say has your impact been in maybe seeing some of these content that you might have seen while on the social media? Now, for me, um, I'm not really on TikTok as much. I'm on Instagram and Snapchat and other stuff a little bit more. Uh, so I didn't make any direct connections. Again, in Pennsylvania, most of my representatives aren't, you know, I, I think Fetterman made like some memes and TikToks and stuff, and that was pretty cool. But, you know, like it wasn't anything where I was like, oh, wow, like he made a meme that only my generation knows or anything like that. But what I will say is not only with the introduction of Gen Z candidates and politicians into Washington, but just also their outreach through a lot of these platforms, what we saw in this previous uh, midterm was something profound. And what we saw was that Generation Z, you know, our, our generation that always catches the flack, always, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't you know, vote, doesn't really come out. You know, they, they have a lot of activism, but there's never really any results. This was the first major sway of an election that was as a result of Generation Z. And in so many of the races where they were thinking, oh, you know, Republicans might be able to do this, they might be able to do that, make big grounds. A lot of the reasons why Democrats were able to win or narrowly lose was because there was a huge blockade of voters that are Gen Z. So what I think that you're seeing is, okay, they're going to keep upping all of this. They're going to keep trying to get on social media, especially with TikTok and the stuff that even people younger than us that are technically like Gen Z would be interacting with because I just think that you have this giant base of voters that is untapped. And now that people are starting to finally take them seriously and respect them, you know, that this can sway elections. And I, and I, I generally think as, as the old motif is, you know, they say that younger minded, you know, younger people are more liberal minded. And, and I do think that's true, especially given that a lot of them are, you know, in college and you're learning about more socially conscious issues. So I think for Democrats, especially, this is something where, again, as our generation gets older and more and more kids can vote, that's an entire group of people that, you know, in maybe certain elections that shouldn't have been as close can now be a lot closer because there's this whole group of people that you were never factoring in before. So I definitely think that this could this could have a huge impact on just what we're seeing in the election trends. And I don't know, maybe maybe eventually one day, you know, the Republicans have to completely reshift their focus, reshift their priorities because they're going to have a much younger, uh, you know, America that's politically active and voting that they're going to have to try to match and try to, you know, kind of kind of sell themselves to. So I was curious what you guys thought about that, just in the sense of, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe the next election, even more Gen Z votes and then more and more after that. So I, I don't know. What, is, what does everyone else think? 
I'm just I'm just going to mention super quick, Jason, to back up your point there. This is from the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement uh, from Tufts uh, Tisch College. Uh, for youth, turnout was the second highest in the last three decades for a midterm election in 2022. Uh, 27% of, of what they define as young people of ages 18 to 29 uh, voting through there. Again, gen generations, of course, they do vary in terms of what people consider to be Generation Z and all that. Uh, but granted, I think we'll take that as a general account uh, for that as well. Bruno, I know you wanted to add something. Go go ahead. Yeah, adding to your point that you were saying before that, you know, we obviously have to have more term limits and, well, kind of a changing of ideas within Congress, which I do completely agree with us. We can't just be rehashing the same things always. Hmm. Is now that we're seeing Generation Z and millennials politicians starting to go into Congress, and obviously we're going to be getting more and more, as Jason said, our generation begins to vote more and more, especially if the politicians are directly talking to them through social media. What can we expect to be the new issues addressed in Congress? What do you guys think? I mean, granted, I, th I think it's more representative of the population and the times for society. I think a lot of times uh, when it comes, of course, uh, you know, racial issues always going to be a big factor for a lot of young people. Uh, LGBTQ issues for the community as well. That could be something to highlight there. Mental health, obviously, is going to be on top of mind for a lot of people uh, for health and human services. And and just, I think, you know, uh, oh, cross engine climate change, of course, environmental issues are definitely going to be really big. Uh, but Granted, I, I think a lot of the same issues will also be there, no doubt. I know you mentioned uh, Representative Frost being an organization for March for Our Lives. So, again, anything in terms for gun safety uh, as well. Uh, so definitely lots to show uh, for in that instance. But granted, I, I don't know how much difference it's going to sway right now because, again, it is just a, a, it's a small portion right now. It's not a lot of the generation. But I'm thinking, give it maybe two, three more election cycles, you're really going to see that change come through there, uh, if anything else. So we'll see how it goes. Jason, anything else to add uh, through that? If any, you know, other uh, issues for Gen Z to consider with uh, elected officials? Well, I'll tell you, you know, the, the college debt debate, I do not think is going to die, even if it's struck down in court. I think for years, this is going to be something, especially with college getting more and more expensive. So I could totally see that, you know, especially if you want to appeal to these voters, try to get them to be on there. But I definitely think another one, uh, maybe universal health care. You know, I feel like Bernie Sanders really spoke to a lot of the ideas that, you know, maybe maybe the younger generation might find a little bit more popular that are a little bit more left. So maybe maybe universal health care, um, you know, as you brought up the climate for sure. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, there there I say, I do think that as a lot of the older politicians are, are start to cycle out and, and just as a result of the trajectory of the amount of gun violence we see, I think that at some point within the next 20 years, again, as we cycle in more Generation Z politicians and as our generation you know, becomes a bigger voting constituency, I definitely think there will be a major piece of gun legislation in some way, shape, or form as a result. Because again, our generation, especially with people like Maxwell Frost, with March for Our Lives, it's a very very important, very prevalent issue that I think is very near and dear to a lot. So I definitely could see that also being a major issue. And I know we're, I know you're saying you're a little rough on the voice for the sore throat today. Anything you want to throw in for Generation Z and what you think they're going to uh, have and want uh, in their elected officials? I just think it's good that we are getting more elected officials that are more around our age because they are going to be able to speak to the issues that you know, we might be trying to bring to the table, but just don't really have the opportunity to. And I think that our older generations kind of, you know, misjudge us. And all I've been thinking about is that time that there was this Trump rally 
and everyone on, well not everyone on TikTok but a lot of people on TikTok bought tickets and then didn't show up and I think that's just like you know a good way to show what we can do and what platforms like TikTok can do and yeah I just think it's good that we're going to be able to get more people to represent us in our issues. I, uh, I will note that New York State, you can be a part of the State Assembly at the age of 18. Uh, so granted, if you ever do want to start, uh, it is definitely early on uh, to go and be a part of government if you wish. And please remember to vote, folks. Make sure you go out and vote uh, so you definitely get your issues and your voice heard uh, for whatever you're looking for and to make some change in society uh, that may need to be rectified or amended. Uh, nevertheless, though, we are going to go and get to Jason's story on Satanism. And what better way to start off uh, beforehand with Satanism than with the Charlie Daniels Band and the Devil Went Down to Georgia. Uh, so we are going to get there in just a little bit. See you then. Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life, national news, and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. There you go. Charlie Daniels band definitely went down to Georgia. And while we're not in Georgia, uh, there definitely is a rise in Satanism, it seems. Uh, how and why? I really don't know. Uh, but Jason, I know you have the scoop for us, so go ahead. So, you know, Satanism. We're going to redefine what a lot of you think about it today because I think that there, are, there is a lot of taboo and a lot of... Uh, sort of like a, a, a risqueness to it. So we're going to, we're going to break down a little bit because I, I found this article and it was just so interesting. So starts off quote unquote, with our rituals, there's never any murder. There's never any sacrifice. There's never any blood rights to Satan. We don't worship the devil. We don't cast magic spells. In fact, as the global order of Satan in the United Kingdom, as well as other leaders and members of satanic groups around the world insist, it would be difficult to spot a Satanist walking down the street. Yet while the macabre occult rituals, virgin sacrifices, chalice of blood, and belief in the actual devil are a thing of the past, Satanism is luring increasing numbers of young people dis disillusioned with outdated and dogmatic traditional religions to join its fold by offering an alternative to stuffy traditional faiths. The Sunday Telegraph has spoken to leaders and members of the satanic groups around the world who claim that the opportunities Satanism offers people to engage in activism and campaign on issues such as gender and sexuality is part of the appeal that younger members are starting to see, particularly those who are less likely to declare themselves as Christian. Chaplain Leopold, a 32-year-old London-based undertaker, co-runs the Global Order of Satan United Kingdom, which has said to have seen an over 200% increase in membership over the last five years. Quote-unquote, I'd love to be able to claim that we could pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, we've done our internal work here and we've successfully declined the number of Christians, but I think it's a far more complex issue than that, he said. Quote, unquote, he said two factors were responsible, the decreasing popularity of traditional dogmatic religions and a movement towards self-identification and self-realization. This is particularly amongst younger people who don't want to be identified as part of a prescriptive dogmatic religion and rather want to identify as their own self-beliefs and self-realization, which is what Satanism offers. So you often say that we're sort of a religion for those who don't like the oppression of previous religions. Chapel Leopold added that many young people are turning away from what we are now from what are now incredibly outdated 
very obviously stuffy views. They're completely not keeping in with modern times. Again, that's from Chapman Leopold, particularly regarding issues such as sexuality and gender identity. His comments come as Christianity battles to appeal to younger generations and remains divided on the issue of gay marriage, with bishops actually preparing for a historic vote on the matter next month. According to the Office for National Statistics Census, published in November, the number of people in England and Wales identifying as Satanists saw a 167% increase between 2011 and 2021, up from 1,893 to 5,054. At the same time, the number of Christians dropped so low that they now account for less than half of England and Wales' population for the first time in census history. The census data prompted the Archbishop of York to insist that Christianity is not terminally declining and that Jesus suffered setbacks, so Christians will too. The figures revealed that 46.2% of the population, 27.5 million people, describe themselves as Christian, marking a 13.1% point decrease from 59.3%, 33.3 million people, in 2011. However, the census also revealed an uptick in less traditional religions. Professor Linda Woodhead, head of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at King's College in London, added that, quote-unquote, Satanism is a young person's religion, but that the bigger phenomena we're seeing is the incredible diversification of religions and spiritual landscape. There's now a lot of solitary exploration, particularly with the Internet, and you can find anything to fit your particular identity, interests, values, or beliefs. Quote, unquote, contrary to the stereotypes, only a fringe minority of Satanists actually worship the devil. Instead, the religion's fascination with Satan is more metaphorical, identifying with the figure of the rebel as epitomized in the protagonist of John Milton's 17th century epic poem, Paradise Lost. Satanists generally do not believe in a higher power and instead revolve around a religion of the self, believing that it's up to the to individuals to define their own moral code and to develop themselves as their own godheads. The group does have rituals and does wear robes, but their meaning is different from what you would expect. Quote unquote, because we embrace that aspect, it's almost like a form of mindfulness, a form of self-actualization. And while religions think they're casting magic spells when performing their rituals, whereas we just believe that we're all coming together and affirming our bonds as humans, Despite this, Chaplain Leopold said that because of the stigma associated with Satanism, many people may not feel comfortable to declare themselves as affiliated with the religion. Maybe there are more Satanists around us as estimates that as there are estimates that there are over one million members worldwide. But maybe there are even more than that one million that have these beliefs but are undeclared. So did I spook anybody out? If anything, I feel like this article maybe should have done the opposite. And, and I feel like, you know, it sounds like it's not as much about the taboo and the, and the scary stuff, but it's more about the idea that it, it's the power to oneself and one's being. And, you know, it sounds like on social issues, they're very progressive. So I was curious, what is everyone's reaction? I'd say the biggest thing I take away from this is that um, there's probably going to be a big rebranding shift, or I think there could be, I don't know, um, on Christianity, Islam, and more the, the more traditional religions to appeal to younger people in order to not lose followers. Because as you said, there's also going to be a referendum on gay marriage in the, in the Christian church. I'm not really sure if it's the Catholic one you're mentioning there because um, I recently read yesterday that apparently the Pope is saying that gay marriage should not be outlawed, but is still considered a sin, which is kind of a weird double standard or even like double speak, which is kind of strange. But I mean, 
that's what he said. But I, what do you guys think? Do you think there's going to be a rebranding for more traditional religions to appeal to the younger crowd? I was going to mention the pontiff, Bruno. You you, you beat me to it. Uh, but granted, I, I think with, with Satanism, I think it, it just gets, I think it's a bad rap. You know, I think a lot of the time you hear a word, you hear something like that, and you just think instantly of somebody that looks like that. And again, that's our unconscious biases, of course, and what we have, you know, as our... Uh, heuristic if anything are shortcuts right uh but granted i i think that you know people again as long as you're able to go and engage and you know inform people on what that particular you know religion or philosophy is that's great uh granted i know uh, jason you did say it's only about five thousand people in the uk uh do we know any stats on the united states and then is, is there any movement in a sense to try and change the the name or the meaning of satanism if anything else I don't have any direct statistics, but I will say, obviously, you know, in the 70s, there was a big movement where more and more people started to do it. But another group that I, I couldn't help but think of in all of this was witches and, and, and people that practice Wicca, because that's usually misconstrued where people think that it's like, oh, they're casting spells, they're evil, whatever. But again, that's another religion where it's more focused on the power of oneself and, and the empowerment that that person has. So I, I do think that, you know, maybe that the world won't see a drastic rise in Satanism per se, but I could absolutely see if there was a religion called the power of oneself or, you know, like maybe call it be being better people. So, you know, hypothetically, just some group like that where it's a group focused mainly on, you know, the power of oneself being better to the people in the world and, and, and being a little bit more progressive on social issues. I can see a, a religion like that absolutely catapulting. And, you know, I, I, I do find that I myself identify as a Catholic, but among my generation, there's a huge decline in the people. You know, I remember growing up, it seemed like more people, um, even even just saying the word God, like it'd be like, ah, oh, God with this, whatever. There, there's like reverence to it. But I find now that a lot of people either don't believe or I just think that it, it especially, and I agree because the the church has made some, some pretty big uh, missteps, in, in my opinion, at least. And I think that a lot of those have deterred members away. And, and then other religions, obviously, there's no perfect religion. So I think that a lot of the missteps of the leadership is kind of leading people to be like, look, I don't need to follow a structure, follow an organization. I'll just do my own thing. And, and as you can see, it's very popular. Maybe not as much with wearing the robes and going to satanic practices, but definitely among just in, in people's own private space, it seems to be that that's the trajectory. And as we're talking about Gen Z, I think that is something that we only see more and more of. I, I know, Jason, humanism is already taken as a philosophy, but if Satanism could change the name, humanism could could bring to it if that's the case. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, granted, I think it's going to continue to grow, but I think it's certainly uh, going to be a slow growth. I don't think we're going to see a exponential increase in the amount of Satanists that we have uh, around the world. But granted, you never know. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for it when the time comes. Uh, but we are going to get to our last story that we have uh, for today. Uh, granted, you know, we always think of these, you know, nightclubs and things like that. Obviously, you got places like Mulligans and Catch right nearby over here uh, on the Hempstead Turnpike. Uh, but granted, you get, you get a lot more of a young crowd, a Gen Z crowd, as we already mentioned today on a lot of our stories here. Uh, so granted, they're having a good time doing what they want with their friends. Uh, but granted, that's not only for young people anymore. Uh, there's the Geezer Happy Hour uh, that's been going on in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Of course, the uh, town, the University of Michigan Wolverines over there. 
there. Uh, and granted, they're trying to change the traditional convention of age. Um, of course, Aaliyah did always say, age ain't nothing but a number. Uh, so granted, you always have that. Um, this party was actually conceived by Randy Tessier, who was actually a University of Michigan lecturer over there in Ann Arbor. Uh, and he's been getting just about over 100 people over the age of 65 since the 70s itself. He actually moved there as a rock musician back in the day. Um, and granted, the party is located at, I guess, the aptly named uh, Live. That's really just all it's called. Um, but granted, it's in the city. Um, guests aren't necessarily hearing, you know, Doja Cat or Jay-Z or things like that. All those late night staples you might hear. Um, but they play Ticket to Ride by the Beatles and lots of other rock and roll songs uh, that they get around to. Um, but granted, they find great joy in the hour. It's a lot of fun time. Um, and researchers think there's a reasoning for this in some circumstances, mainly because it keeps them more active. They're able to go and form a sense of community there. Uh, so it's definitely good to go and have that as well. Um, one attendee that was quoted in the New York Times article said, quote, it is the most wonderful thing in my life. It makes me happy every week, end quote. Uh, so granted, lots of good things to see through there. It was actually interesting. The other part they were saying, was that a lot of the time, uh, you know, nobody would look at their phones over there because, you know, over 65 and stuff. But it's like their kids, they're just in their phones. They don't really spend any time. They're not really engaging with the music and things like that. It's just I'm at a party. I'm living it up. I'm going to record it on Snapchat in my Snap stories and then send it to everybody. So what what do we think about that? Do, do we think an over 65 club, uh, the fact you even say this is kind of crazy, but would, you, would we feel this is something that, you know, could be seen as a good trend? They actually had uh, they mentioned that during the pandemic, they actually had a Zoom meeting as well. So they were able to go incorporate that during the pandemic also. But do, do we think that could be something or is it more of a niche uh, aspect to it? I think it's honestly really good that we're incorporating this because it's a really dumb stigma that we have to have, you know, that after a certain age, you can't really be doing like big parties or anything. Like especially we've seen in a lot of media that, oh, but after the age of like 40, you're only supposed to have like wine parties and just sit down in your, in your couch with like four other people. It's like, Really? No, let's, let's, we still are, not only are we, you know, aging slower due to technology, we should be actually still enjoying our lives. And especially for el the elderly that a lot of times have less connections due to, you know, having been retired, so you don't have those work friends that much, or you're put in a nursing home, which, I mean, if you don't, if you do need it, it's understandable, understandable but if you're just kind of there, it's kind of depressing. There's been a lot of studies on that. So it is good that they're having a place to have community and stuff. And let's be honest, who who wants to just sit down and relax for the rest of their lives after a certain age just because society says so? That's considered unfair in my opinion. Jason, well, I think, oh, go ahead. You're good. I was going to say, I think, too, um, you know, they, they, they say that really movement and activity are so important in what keeps you youthful. And, you know, as you get to an older age, maybe you don't want to go to the gym as much, but, you know, even if you're just busting some moves on the dance floor, being able to just walk around, talk, um, I, I feel like this can only have positive benefits for them. And two, as I said, it builds a sense of community and especially, you know, as Bruno brought up, like you get to a certain age and you start to not have as many friends, rather if they pass or, you know, they move different places, life goes on, people are busy, you know, so being able to have a group of people you could still consistently, you know, talk to, hang out with, I think that helps them so that they don't have that feeling because as you get older, I mean, again, I'm saying this as a 20 year old, but you know, you get older and I think that there's that looming idea of like, yeah, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. So getting to do something that makes you still feel that good for them. I, I feel like they should have this in every major area, really, because 
who wouldn't enjoy that? You know, you get on all their favorite music. I'm sure they all know all the songs and dances. And I feel like that would be so fun to just see them all have a good time like that. You know, I feel like old people always get a bad rep as being miserable and stuff. But, you know, you put on some music from wherever their their favorite artist or group is. And let me tell you, I, I've seen some old people bust some moves at the country club. So I'm sure that, you know, they are as well. I, uh, I will say they actually mentioned in the article there was a Grammy-winning harmonica player, actually, that came to go and work with the band over there when they were doing a lot of that as well. Last question before we go. Would your grandparents go to this over-65 club or not? Oh, I, oh I'm pretty sure they would. I mean, my grandmother does have, like, a little bit of issues, like, moving, but she at least, you know, like, sit down and chat and have a little bit of a good time with a different environment than, you know, just your usual wine party. Jason, would 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 uh, would they show up at all? You think? So Nan and Nanny would, Chip and Pop would not. So I think that the grandmothers would go. They would have a ball. I think the grandfathers stay behind. They're both not as much into the social scene. I I could see my grandparents for the most part. My well, my my grandfather's able to see. So my my dad's my dad's dad would definitely go if he was still alive. He would definitely he would definitely go around. I think my dad's parents would certainly go. My mom's parents I I don't know. I don't know if they're really into all that kind of stuff. But good uh good to see that they're getting out, busting some moves out there and having a good time. Because hey, you know you you only live once, right? That's usually how they uh go with the monikers uh but the morning we'll get called does not only live once uh please make sure to come on back again we're not going to be here uh at least the january term uh for next week because we're going to start the spring week uh so before we go just want to go and highlight for the weeks we're going to have uh we have, actually i have the schedule up uh so for monday uh, we're going to have danny DiCrescenzo be the producer over there along with bruno uh being the host so i know he's definitely looking forward to it on uh mondays over there hannah vincent of course will also be on that monday so almost going to have a little bit of that january crew there uh i myself am going to be on tuesdays over there and then jason you are on thursdays of course with ronnie uh, over there being the producer for thursday so we're definitely looking forward to all of that uh before we go any any last any last words before the end of the semester goes i'd say it was a pleasure working with you guys and uh hannah i'll see you over on monday <laughs> yeah it'll be exciting to finally be in person instead of over zoom yeah hey, it's been a fun ride and you know with the end of one journey always begins another so excited for some more morning wake up call the most I'm excited for, Dallas's Dish is coming back next semester. I'm getting ready. Uh, so definitely looking forward to that when the time comes. Well, please, everybody, have a great week. Safe travels wherever you're going. And please tune in for the Friday show, end of the week. Always great to end the week on a high note. So make sure to tune in tomorrow as well. Otherwise, we'll see you soon and have a good one. by Christopher Cavallero and ARC Excess and Surplus, LLC. ARC Excess and Surplus is a wholesale insurance brokerage that offers